You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Fong. Welcome to episode 151 of the Christian Humanist Podcast. I'm your host for today. My name is Michael Farmer. I'm an assistant professor of English at Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. I'm also recording through an embedded laptop microphone instead of my normal headset. So if I sound like I'm in a barrel, that's probably why. <laughs> uh, joining me today, as usual, Nathan Gilmore, a, a, a associate professor of English at Emanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. Man, it is that time of the semester where I can't remember if you teach at my school or if I teach at your school or what. How's it going, Nathan? <laughs> uh, it's going pretty well. Uh, this is the time of year where I don't mind having started teaching in the first week of August because I've got really a week and a day of classes left to teach. Wowie zowie. Yeah. We have, I hate we, you. Have, we have one week after Thanksgiving. Yeah. Uh, no, after Thanksgiving, we have a day of class, which is pretty much, you know, review the final exam study guide, and then we have finals week. Nice. Wow. Also joining us for the last time, probably this semester, uh, David Grubbs, who is soon to be a father for the second time. Yay. David is a, a professor of English at uh, Central Christian College in McPherson, Kansas. Oh, my word. Any moment now. Any moment now. So, so I, after this episode, for the rest of the semester, uh, Danny Anderson will be filling in for David. Yeah. Right. In fact, by the time this posts, um, the baby will be here. So there will probably actually be notifications of time and place and gender and name and all those sorts of things, even before this episode. If our podcast were a movie or a TV show, the baby's name would be like Nathan Michael Grubbs. <laughs> I just but want it's to, not. I just, I just so want to point more. that out. <laughs> if you really cared about us, you would name your child after us. Even if it's a girl? Yes. Nathana, oh. Michaela. <laughs> Michaela's a name now. Did you guys know that? Yes. I have two Michaelas in an 11-person class. Two. Two Michaelas. You're, yes. you're just aware that Michaela is a name? I, I, I had heard it before. But I thought it was kind of a fringe name. Wasn't, wasn't there a uh, U.S. Olympic gymnast named Michaela? I hope you're not asking me about the U.S. Olympic gym, gymnastics team. <laughs> <laughs> there was a gal on Saturday Night Live a few years ago named Michaela, and I think that's the first time I'd ever heard that name. So I assumed that it was like a, you know, a made-up name. I knew people were named that, but I didn't know that multiple people were named that. <laughs> well, I have a Michaelin. Very nice. Who sits next to a Kaylin. That was not confusing for the first few weeks. My wife in her sociology class has three gals named Hannah, and their last names all begin with P. Nice. I think two, two out of three of them have red hair. <laughs> Maybe I'm wrong about that. 
Oh, but if, if you know, on the off chance, Kaylin and McKaylin, if you ever ever hear this, you guys are awesome. I am not making fun of your name, but I am. But but he is because that's how he rolls. Hey, my name is my name is Michael, spelled I A L. I get to make fun of anybody's name I want. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Well, our topic for today is nostalgia, and that term mm. is perhaps either older or younger than one might imagine it to be. Uh, in fact, it, it was coined by the Swiss physician Johannes Hofer, Hofer in uh, 1688. Nathan, <laughs> I did not make you read Hofer's dissertation on nostalgia, but can you piece together what exactly he used this term to mean? Sure. I read around a little bit uh, prepping for the episode, and Hofer uh, was diagnosing something that happened when you put mercenary soldiers in the field. Uh, in 1688, of course, uh, you are in the period after the Thirty Years' War, but sort of leading into uh, the Wars of Succession, the Habsburg Wars, whatever you want to call that. Very broad use of mercenaries, and Swiss mercenaries tended to be in very high demand. Well, one of the things that would happen with Swiss mercenaries, more so than with other soldiers, is that while in the field, they would come down with strange illnesses, uh, and when field medics would interview them about their symptoms and such, one of the connections that they made was that they were longing to make a homecoming. And so Hofer uh, coined the term nostalgia. It's a compound Greek term, uh, meaning the pain coming from a desire for homecoming. Uh, and in the first few centuries of its use, uh, nostalgia was a was diagnosed as a disease, as, you know, smallpox or, you know, something like that would be diagnosed. It was something that people sought a cure for because, honestly, Swiss mercenaries were very good soldiers and people wanted to be able to put them in the field, and they knew that they were especially susceptible to this disease. Hmm. Uh, and, you know, one, one interesting anecdote that I think three out of the four sources that I read pointed to was that a, a shade later on uh, when the Russian army was in the field, uh, one of the generals said that, you know, he's aware of nostalgia and the first soldier who comes down with it, we're going to bury him alive. Holy crap. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, if, if listeners, if you've seen the movie, uh, Patton, you know, George C. Scott has nothing on the Russians. <laughs> well, we knew that. Great Michael, what other bits would you add to that account? Just that, I mean, you mentioned that they looked for cures, and Hofer, Hofer did believe this was largely like a medical condition that had a yeah. cure, and a relatively mm -hmm. easy one. The cure that he proposed, from my understanding, I also have not read that dissertation. I wrote a big paper on nostalgia this semester, but it would have cost my library like 50 bucks to get me a copy of his dissertation. <laughs> so I said, you know what, I'm probably not going to use anything from it. But from my understanding... He, um, his cure for nostalgia was uh, just a simple homecoming. So if, if you would simply take them back to Switzerland for some period of time, their nostalgia would disappear and they would be able to kill people haphazardly again. <laughs> Yay, consummation <laughs> devoutly to be wished. It's, it's weird to think about Swiss mercenaries, isn't it? Because there's the, they have, I guess, I guess neutrality would, would produce mercenaries, wouldn't it? Yeah. Well, yeah. why, why do you think it was that the Swiss were able to say, don't invade us so effectively for so long? You know? 
Well, uh, as commonly happens, the meaning of this term nostalgia has shifted in some interesting ways over the centuries between us and Hofer. Uh, David, when people talk about nostalgia in 2014, what are they generally talking about? And if you if you're able to do this, talk about how that conception has changed over time. Mm. Um, in a uh, a scientific double-blind study that I was able to uh, do on the fly yesterday, um, I found out that these days nostalgia mainly refers to the fact that cartoons were better when we were kids. <laughs> Which I think we're going to get to in a little while. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's, that's, uh, when we say nostalgia these days, it's, it's just kind of a swanky way of saying, wasn't the past great? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, everything was better. It, it, it's, it's the look on, you know, English majors over, I guess, suppose, I suppose over the age of 30, 35, uh, the, the look on their faces when you start talking about Encyclopedia Brown or something <laughs> like that. Um, you know, hey, remember when that horse died in Neverending Story and everyone's like, oh, yeah. Hey, hey, remember the 80s? Yes. <laughs> so that that seems to be, at least from, from what I can tell, that that's mainly what nostalgia means. Just just that kind of wistful, hey, remember that great thing that you used to love. Um you know, to 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 the point where you can find online people who will refer to themselves as nostalgia gamers. Um <laughs> people who intentionally seek out and play old, incredibly out of date video games purely for uh-huh. the nostalgia. Um you know, th- th- things things of that nature. So, uh, it's it's uh, it's m- I guess more positive. You know, I don't think anybody goes to the doctor for nostalgia anymore. <laughs> um, but uh, nor, um, from what I can tell, is it particularly associated with um, a geographical location. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if the nostalgia that these poor Swiss mercenaries felt was was homesickness, right? I suppose they wanted to get home back home to their chocolate and knives with multiple blades or something. Fondue, don't forget the fondue. Yes, the fondue. Um, and other sorts of gear. Yes. <laughs> Instead of a location um, in space that one wants to get back to, uh, these days I think nostalgia tends to refer back to uh, as a point in time that one wants to get back to. But but it's still, I would say, often positionally grounded, right? So if, if you think mm-hmm. of it, it I, I'm a terribly nostalgic person, and and I, I connect that feeling of sweet sadness with particular locations in my past life. Last week, for example, on this show, we talked for a good 10 minutes about places in Athens that we miss. That That's nostalgia, and it's nostalgia for yeah. the past and the way you're talking, but it's still positionally grounded. Mm-hmm. No, that's true. That there's, um, I think, maybe the thing that makes nostalgia um, distinct from just, hey, don't you wish you could be eight years old again? Um, what makes nostalgia for, distinct from that is, is, as you say, that it it has a locus that can in some that it can in some sense be returned to, but not necessarily in exactly the same way. 
Right. Although there are border cases like the the gamers that you were just talking about, Grubs, where mm-hmm. geography ceases to be a factor. So mm-hmm. I, I would say it's often geographically connected still, but not always anymore. Well, I, I didn't say – well, I, I didn't mean ge- geographically exact, exactly. Something could have a, 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 a locus um, more um, – I guess more more metaphorically, you know. Oh, okay, so that, okay. you know the way I feel when I watch Crawl. <laughs> I, I don't know what that is. Okay, you don't know what that is, Crawl. No one. No. The Glaive. Nothing. We got nothing here. Oh my gosh. Anyway, never mind. Uh, I'll I'll name another one later. Labyrinth. <laughs> all right, there you go. Okay. All right. All right. All right. Direct hit. So, you know, there there I would say that that, that that particular feeling has it has a it has a focus. It has a, a location, so to speak, and I can in some sense go back to that location, but not in the same way that I was at that location previously. Don't mm. don't you think that when you're nostalgic for Labyrinth that you are in some sense transported to wherever it is that you used to watch it? You're you're sitting in your parents' living room at age six. That, that it's not a completely geographically dissociated um, phenomenon. That's probably true. What, what's what's interesting to me, David, and I, I think you're onto something here about about this this pop cultural nostalgia, and we're going to talk about that in some more detail later, or maybe not, because maybe we're just going to cover it here. <laughs> uh, <laughs> By but, all means, come back to it. <laughs> but but one thing that's interesting to me is. You know, a lot of a lot of work was done on nostalgia in the '70s and early '80s for whatever reason. Uh, it's kind of the golden age of sociologists and, and philosophers talking about nostalgia, and, and they're they're all very insistent that it is it is grounded in place. It, it is it is not just about time. It is it is about um, you feeling locked out of the Garden of Eden um, of your childhood, and and that mm. being. That that being positional in addition to temporal, mm-hmm. and, and I, mm-hmm. I wonder I wonder the extent to which that has changed um, when you can be when you can be uh, nostalgic for electronic media, mm-hmm. which is by its very definition uh, placeless, or or at mm-hmm. the very least it has a place that is different for everybody or accessible to nobody, depending on whether you want to think of it, uh, think of a video game as being located in Nintendo headquarters or on a mm-hmm. server somewhere, or whether it's located in the bedrooms of every eight-year-old who played Super Mario Brothers. Right. Mm. I feel like this is something Neil Postman would be grumpy about. <laughs> well, it is a thing, so it is something that he would be grumpy about. <laughs> <laughs> and I, 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 for once, am not being grumpy about this. I think it's an interesting phenomenon, okay. the, the, yeah. the, this shift away from place. Um, mm-hmm. I, I'm not sure if I'm particularly sanguine about it, but I am also, th- this is not something I see as the end of the world exactly. Nostalgia is such a tricky thing anyway that I don't want to tell people they're doing it wrong. <laughs> yes. <laughs> mm-hmm. Exactly. You, you almost, by definition, if you're doing it, you can't almost, by definition, be doing it wrong, right? It's, it's so subjective, right? It's a, it's a, it's either an emotion or a form of memory. Mm -hmm. Right. Although there are people who self-identify as purists for this or that nostalgic thing. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, I, you know, I, I, again, I always point to the border cases, but I mean, there are actually people who say you're doing nostalgia wrong. Let me show you how to do it right. 
<laughs> well, and I, I will tell you one way I will, uh, I will say people are doing nostalgia wrong. I don't think you can be, strictly speaking, nostalgic for something you didn't live through. So I like, uh, I like 1940s culture, right? I, I listen to old radio shows. Me doing so is not a nostalgic act. It's something else, and it's something interesting and something worth talking about, but mm-hmm. I, I wouldn't call that nostalgia because it's not a Garden of Eden I've lost. It's, it's, it's something mm-hmm. I, I never experienced. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would just call that romanticism. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, would, yeah. I, I think I would go along with that. Right, right. Yeah. Well, I mean, we're going to get into this as well, but I mean, one of the possibilities that we should at least consider is a collective nostalgia rather than an individual nostalgia mm, in, okay. in which case lifespan might not be the determining variable or personal experience right right the, the the idea that persons in my culture tend to be nostalgic about x right because i mean I, I honestly i mean i see as much of that as i do personal nostalgia hmm. and, and i mean i guess to, to to be fair michael didn't say that doesn't exist he just says they're doing it wrong. I'm, I'm just saying. I'm just saying that shouldn't be. It, it shouldn't be called. I don't think it should be called nostalgia. I think we should keep our terms straight. Okay. Okay. The, the, right, that's right. A, that's an interesting phenomenon. It's not. It's not debased. It's not wicked. It, it's it, it's an interesting phenomenon that we should call by some other name so that we can discuss it adequately. Mm. Mm-hmm. So what we need is a new Johannes Hofer to come come and give us a new <laughs> Greek word. Yeah. Oh, I, I did not say this when we were talking about him because it didn't even occur to me um, until until just now. But I, th- I I think that we might be able to find a way to to that that these things are connected. Um, which the way uh, the way you described um, Hoffer uh, diagnosing and treating nostalgia. Um, I've been doing some research lately on uh, medieval views of lovesickness, which was considered a disease, mm-hmm. a um, a diagnosable disease going back as far as Galen, actually. But the ultimate uh, the ultimate treatment for lovesickness is to actually unite them with the beloved. <laughs> then you get a different kind of sickness, I suspect. I, I imagine so. Because, I mean, I mean lovesickness is a good comparison, David, because yeah. like like nostalgia, lovesickness tends to be not a reaction to something that actually exists or existed, but mm-hmm. your imaginary buildup of that thing. So mm-hmm. the the reason going back to Switzerland isn't actually going to cure your nostalgia is because the Switzerland that you're homesick for is not the real Switzerland. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and the reason that getting together with your courtly lover is not going to solve your lovesickness, or, or it probably will for a little while, but mm-hmm. then you'll just develop it for somebody else, is because you're not in love with that person, really. You're in love with your Don Quixote, right? You, you've 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 mm-hmm. kind of created the person to be in love with. Well, mm. though, 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 you're making a move there that Hoffer and Galen and the medievals are not yet prepared to make. Right, because they really right. are locating, um, they really are locating the object of desire in the case of lovesickness in in the person for whom this very specific person is pining, and right. um, in, in in a kind of medical way, they are sick with desire for person X, 
and so person X can can heal them. But I, I, I do think that we are prepared to make that later move by, um, by, by other ideas. Of, yeah, of saying, I, I mean, notably uh, Fleetwood Mac, who argued that players only love you when they're playing. Exactly. But I'm not I sure guess. we can trust their conclusions, because they also said that thunder only happens when it's raining, and I'm not sure that's true. Ah, oh, true enough, true enough. That does call the conclusion into question. Well, at least the judgment of the witness. <laughs> but Nathan, don't stop thinking about it, okay? <laughs> you know I won't. <laughs> oh yeah, right. I'm I'm in charge of this episode. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> November, everybody. Yeah. <laughs> Behold your November. November in the life of an academic. Yeah, it's yeah, April, not the cruelest month. Well, April is the November of the spring. I'm not sure it's any better. Oh, that's true. Uh, Does that make ISIS the uh, Ebola of... <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> oh, man. I'm nostalgic for a time when we could stay on topic on this podcast. <laughs> Which also probably didn't exist. <laughs> Carry on. It seems, it seems to me that certain traditional readings of the Bible can lend themselves rather easily to nostalgic thinking. I've perhaps already cracked this egg by repeatedly referring to nostalgia as the experience of being ejected from a Garden of Eden. But Nathan, mm-hmm. as our resident theologian, can you can you work this out further um, for me? Is, is this Judeo-Christian conception of history a particularly nostalgic one? Well, it's interesting. I want to talk about uh, sort of biblical currents first, and then I'll talk a little bit about later Christian developments. Uh, really, I mean, the garden itself, uh, you could map nostalgia onto it, but you would definitely have to be imposing on the text to do so. The first real description of nostalgia that I can think of as I was prepping for the episode is actually one that's under very deep suspicion. And that is the Hebrews, after they have crossed the Red Sea, almost immediately they start pining (laughs) for Egypt. Uh, and you know, uh, have you brought us out here so that we can starve to death? At least in Egypt, we had water to drink and flesh pots from which to eat. Uh, and, by the way, flesh pots is one of the most awesome King James phrases ever. Uh, but what now? Also onions. Oh, yes. onion. How could I forget onions? How could I forget onions? So the very first, you know, or at least among the first uh, moments of nostalgia is under very deep suspicion. However, a little bit later on, Uh, it gets a little bit more complex because you get the narratives of the actual reign of David in 2 Samuel, Mm. during which at least I come to think, oh my goodness, is it ever going to be good when they get rid of this guy? But then by the time (laughs) you get to 1 and 2 Kings, uh, every time you have an immoral and wicked king, uh, the refrain in 1 and 2 Kings is, he did not walk in the ways of King David. Yep. Uh, and, you know, of course, you know, being the the jaundiced reader that I am, my thought is, no, he's actually doing quite good at being like David. But, that, you know, that's, <laughs> that's not how First and King, Second Kings narrates it. So Bible words for Bible things is my tradition mandates. <laughs> A little bit later on, when Israel is in exile, you get really the strongest. The strongest theme, if you will, of nostalgia in the Bible, uh, you get, among other things. Uh, prophetic oracles that don't point forward to a promised land, but backwards to a restoration of Israel. Uh, Certainly Isaiah has these, Ezekiel has these, Zechariah has these. Uh, And perhaps most famously, 
the most violent psalm that every Bible college sophomore loves most, uh, Psalm 137, of course, ends with the smashing of babies against rocks. But it begins with a song of lament for a lost Jerusalem. How can we sing the songs of Zion when we are in a foreign land? Uh, so part of the spiritual sensibility, if you will, of the later Old Testament in the exilic period, and most interestingly in the post-exilic period when they are geographically back in Israel, but they are not under the Davidic monarchy anymore in any, in any real sense, that nostalgia comes across. Now, what's interesting in the New Testament, to turn that direction, uh, is that most evidently in Matthew, uh, but in other parts of the New Testament as well, uh, you get a sense that the nostalgia of the prophets comes into its fullness and therefore takes on a forward-looking eschatological character in the birth, de birth teachings, life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, so it's one of those things where the nostalgia for the promised land gets expanded to all of the lands of the earth. The nostalgia for the chosen people gets extended to all who would believe. Uh, so it's one of those things where, like so many other things uh, in Matthew and in other parts of the New Testament, it is brought forward, it is blessed, and it is brought into its fulfillment. Now, a little bit later on, uh, and I'll try to make this part a little bit quicker, uh, when you get into the Christian era, you do get periods of nostalgia, uh, and you especially see this in the tradition of martyr stories. Uh, mm. These stories are told to say that there was a time when Christians were real Christians by grab, uh, and they would die for their faith, and they would testify to the creator of heaven and earth as they were being killed. And back then, it really meant something. And you can see in some respects, and I mean, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a bit of an interpretive stretch here, but what else is new? In some sense, you can see the medieval monastic movement as a sort of nostalgia for that very rigorous, disciplined life of the Christian martyrs. These are people who make sacrifices of self in order to demonstrate devotion and de demonstrate gratitude. In a lot of ways, that seems to be reaching backwards to the era of the martyrs. Uh, and then, of course, I mean, one other thing that just occurred to me, and I don't know why I didn't jot it down, uh, the practice of visiting the shrines of saints is a kind of nostalgia. And I mean, and nodding back to Michael's distinction, most often it's not the sort of nostalgia rooted in personal experience, but certainly it's a sense that this person is holy in a way that we are not holy now, and visiting the place associated with that person will bring us into contact with that holiness. Uh, now, David, I mean, if you talk about the Bible in the early medieval period, you're talking about an awful lot of material. What high points would you add to my account there? Um, well, the, the first is, um, I think, kind of, a, kind of a sweet one um, in uh, Hosea chapter 2, when in in which the the the, the speaker is God, mm -hmm. referring uh, speaking speaking to Israel, and one of the things that one of the elements in that speech is, hey, remember back when we used to hang out in the wilderness? Those were great times. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, you know those were the those were the good days when our relationship was new and we were just kind of hanging out. We liked each other. Out there in the wilderness, let's go out in the wilderness again. <laughs> <laughs> you 
you know, it's 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 actually kind of a sweet moment because it's it's as if God is speaking of of uh, his his relationship with the people of Israel. You know, as a husband might to a wife, saying, "Hey, remember when we were first dating? Hey, remember when we were first married? Remember those good days?" Um, I, I think that's actually it. it you, you you can't say there are a lot of places in the Old Testament where you could describe the way God behaves as a ador- as adorable. <laughs> but I would I would kind of there when he's God as nostalgic husband. You know, That's... what's interesting about that example to me, David, is, mm-hmm. is uh, hey, remember remember the good old days when you were wandering in the wilderness? Oh, and by the way, when you were all saying, hey, remember the good old days when we were in Egypt? It, yeah, it, exactly, it, exactly. It, it demonstrates <laughs> that kind of mise on a beam of, uh, of nostalgia. It just, it's, it's, there's, the, the golden age, of course, never existed. It's just what you remember because mm. you don't like where you are now. Yeah. Mm. It's, it's, it, nostalgia is only a move you can make now. You know, but uh, the other one is just a verse, Ecclesiastes 7.10. Do not say why were the old days better than these, for it is not wise to ask such questions. <laughs> not, not denying that they are, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> not denying that they are. It's just, it's just a foolish question. <laughs> That's all I had to add. I, I was thinking not of the, not of the Bible here, but of... Um... When I teach my honors freshman class, we, we read this mm-hmm. whole series of sermons yeah. about how a hundred years ago, people in Britain really believed in God and were real Christians. But the, uh, pro- okay. but the problem is this goes back to like, the first one we read is by Wolfstone, who is very, oh, yeah. very early in the history of Britain. So, uh, you know, the, the question I ask the students who, who are always very receptive to this, of course, as am I. I mean, as I said, I'm a nostalgic person. I am a I'm a the, the present sucks, the past was better type of person. Mm-hmm. But but the question I always ask them is, point to me the time when people in Britain believed in God, you know, if, if all these sermons are to be believed. They never did. It was always, it was, it was always, everybody always experiences life as a falling off. Mm-hmm. Which the funny thing is that in, in that very sermon, if you're, if you're talking about the sermon of the wolf to the, to the English, Michael. Indeed I am. Okay, in that sermon, um, he actually refers back even further to Gildas, um, a a British writer. We would, we would say Welsh now, talking about how great the good old days were back in his day, back when the Britons loved God <laughs> and and weren't all carnal and worldly and and getting judged by the invasions of these Anglo-Saxon people. Right. Right. So, or, or we could point centuries later to every senior citizen Sunday school class ever taught. <laughs> ever. Remember when candy only cost a penny? Oh man, I, I mean, I, I joke, I joke with my wife sometimes about that because, of course, when we visit family, we go to her parents' Sunday school class, and I, uh, you know, there really is only one senior citizen Sunday school lesson. <laughs> Although well, it, I, I'm not, yeah. I'm not sure I'm any better. We had a student over at our house last weekend, and uh, every two or three minutes, I would have to explain some cultural reference from the '90s. <laughs> <laughs> I, felt, I felt like Nathan Gilmore. Oh, <laughs> man, that's yeah, awesome. But you, you know, young people today don't know the classics. That's the that's the problem. It is when the I problem. when I was young, I knew all sorts of stuff from the '70s. Yeah, <laughs> I was well versed in pop culture from 1973. 
Yeah, now <laughs> I, I actually was, but I mean, my response was always, Dad, quit playing that old stuff. <laughs> awesome. And then only later, only later did you realize that was good stuff. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I mean. But it had to stop like, being your dad's stuff. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, only in retrospect can I realize that my, you know, my preference for Def Leppard over Leonard Skinner was somewhat irrational. I'm not sure. <laughs> I think I think they may be on about the same level. <laughs> it's just the, cult, the culture has decided that one of them is shameful and one of them is not. That and I also hear them on the radio on occasion. <laughs> well, one of the uh, biggest sites of cultural nostalgia in Western literary history actually predates the coinage of that word nostalgia. Um, I, am, I am talking about the pastoral tradition of the late Middle Ages and the Renaissance. Mm. David, mm. I know your wife works with pastoral even if you don't. What can you tell us about that tradition's relationship to a glamorized past? Well, it's interesting because the pastoral, um, it, it, at least, you know, ra raking through my brains, um, the, what, we, what we might properly call the pastoral um, is, is itself a classical thing. Um, uh, I believe Hesiod's Works and Days, um, Virgil's Eclogues, um, that, that there was a tradition of Greek and then later of, of Roman pastoral verse but I, I don't know it as well, but my impression, you know, the, the impression my memory leaves is that it was less about a glorified past than it was about glorifying the rule over the urban. Which, which I, I would argue amounts to the same thing because, because the urban is civilization, the urban is progress, the urban is what's up to date. The whole mm -hmm. appeal of the rural is that it's an older way of life. Albeit one that is supposedly still available. Well, it, it, they are. I'm not. I'm not going to say that they're unrelated. Um, mm -hmm. But where I see a where I see a difference is when that um, when you see that same pastoral crop up in, say, Philip Sidney's Arcadia. Um, it's not just an urban aristocratic Englishman writing about how wonderful it would be to be a shepherd, a simple shepherd. Um, Arcadia is imagining not just city folk going to be shepherds, it's going back to ancient Greece. So that we've got, you know, it's not just Englishmen in the countryside, it's ancient Greeks in the countryside. It's, it's the pastoral of the classical tradition itself, not just the countryside, but but the classical pastoral, which is um, which is idealized in um, in Sydney's Arcadia, so and and even beyond that, you have characters inside of the Arcadia. Um, you know, you have a king and his daughters, and this king decides that he's going to um, evade a, a a prophecy that that you know he will lose his kingdom by. Uh, leaving it in the hands of uh, regents and going to pretend to be a shepherd. So you have this uh, sort of nested pastoral image. Um, you, you have the, the pastoral, the classical pastoral past in Arcadia, and then inside of Arcadia you have someone trying to get back to <laughs> a classical pastoral past embedded in this narrative about this classical pastoral past. Um which is super fun. 
um, and 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 I mean the the short Arcadia, not the long Arcadia. Um, yeah, if if you're going to read an Arcadia, dear listeners, read the earlier one, not the later yes. one. Yes, <laughs> the the later one is super confusing and unfinished. Mm-hmm. Um, In other words, the older one is better. <laughs> yes, the older one is better, but it's written by the same dude, right? So it's it's not ex- not exactly making the same move. Um. A little bit different from Spencer's um, Shepherd's Calendar, in which um, it is pastoral, it is shepherds, but they're shepherds in the current day, and they're sort of allegorically commenting on modern politics. It's more the the shepherd as a kind of rural prophet figure who stands on the borders of you know sophisticated politics and can and can in his you know with his his rural rustic notes um nonetheless speak truth to them um his his the the simplicity of the shepherd allows him to um to to see what the sophisticates cannot so to speak um not exactly the same nostalgic move um you also see that nostalgia not um not just for this classical past which is associated with the pastoral but also with a, a chivalric past, the chivalric romance, um, which uh, Spencer's Fairy Queen is, is all about this nostalgia for. Remember back in the day when it was all knights and fair ladies and, and you know, the knights were virtuous and heroic and the ladies were virtuous and maidenly and it was just, it was just a good time, right? I figured I figured he wouldn't be able to sustain that vision after Chaucer had already kicked it in the nuts pretty hard in the Canterbury Tales. But <laughs> that's true. Well, not Though to mention Mallory, that... for God's sake. Exactly. But the funny thing is that um, those medieval texts are a- actually they were already nostalgic for for chivalric romance at the beginning of chivalric romance. Right. Mm-hmm. It's just endless um, deferring. Yeah, um, this is uh, Chrétien, all right, French writer of mm-hmm. chivalric romance. This is the beginning of his The Knight, um, the Knight of the Lion. Uh, Arthur, the good king of Britain, whose valor teaches us to be brave and courteous, held a court of truly royal splendor at a most costly feast. No, at that most costly feast known as Pentecost, the king was at Carlisle in Wales, and then he talks about you know, knights and damsels um, enjoying each other's company. And then he says, Today very few serve love. Nearly everyone has abandoned it. And love is greatly abased because those who loved in bygone days were known to be courtly and valiant and generous and honorable. But now love is reduced to empty pleasantries. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, this is the 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 opening move of one of the very earliest chivalric romances and his opening move is, Hey, remember back in the day of knights and fair ladies, mm-hmm. which of course, and... I mean, by my own, <laughs> by my own earlier definition, we're not actually talking about nostalgia, but this other thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that it, that it's all always already, we need to find a better word than nostalgia. Nathan, do you know enough Greek to give us a, a, a word for this? <laughs> Well, we, I mean, I, no, could, we call it a, could we call it a cultural nostalgia? Well, I mean, let me ask you this, Grubbs. I mean, would Elegy 
and the elegiac be a usable term here? Because mm. it strikes me that, I mean, that generic term might, I mean, if we could expand its connotation to encompass sort of a stance towards the past. Um, I think it's related, but I think nostalgia has, and we've been using the phrase, a sweet sadness that elegy ah, does okay. not necessarily. Right. Yeah, because it, it feels good to be sad when you're nostalgic. Yes. Okay. All right. Whereas All right. it does not feel good to be the wanderer. Yeah, yeah. Unless Standings. you're talking about Dion's wanderer. He seems to have a pretty good time. <laughs> no, the, the, the old English. I know. Or... I make that joke every time we talk about the wanderer, but. Hey, I know you I, do. I, I've, got, I've got very few jokes. <laughs> you do. I'm nostalgic for that one time that you made that joke. <laughs> the, the one time it was funny. <laughs> I, and, and like all other forms of nostalgia, it's a past that doesn't actually exist. <laughs> So I I don't know can, can can we make some kind of a case for a cultural nostalgia um as opposed to an individual nostalgia? Well, that's what I was trying to put forth earlier but Michael pooed it. <laughs> Sorry. Well, you know, I I I'm I'm trying to say, you know, how can we how can we keep a term that has that notion of the sweet sadness over the past that's lost, not a where now the horse and the rider desolation. Right. Well, and, uh, I, and I mean, I, I think that, and again, you, you can call it inauthentic, but I think it's a real phenomenon that, I mean, you know, UGA sophomores whose parents moved to Atlanta from Cleveland in the 70s will still affect this, you know, southern country boy persona. And I mean, mm -hmm. there's something going on there. And I mean, I'm inclined to call it something like what David just said, you cultural know, a, nostalgia. a cultural nostalgia rather than an individual one. Okay. Hey, I'm outvoted. <laughs> I still, well, I still no, want I, us to come up with a Greek word like nostalgia, but I'm afraid this well, would... My, my, yeah, my Greek isn't that good, man. <laughs> Anybody who has better Greek than Nathan, tell us what... We, we need like a word... That, uh, yeah, Alex of, P., we're looking at you. Of like yearning for... Uh, yearning and what? Vanished? Or... Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, since Alex P. has time to kick my butt every time I get Greek wrong... Now it's your turn to do something constructive. <laughs> <laughs> well, we need to get moving on because we still have uh, a bunch of questions left and we're 40 yes, minutes indeed. into the show. Uh, Nathan, I would be remiss if I didn't give you the opportunity to talk about what might be the epicenter of American nostalgia in the 20th and 21st centuries, Disneyland and Walt Disney World. I guess that would be epicenters, but really they're the same thing, right? Yeah. <laughs> How does your favorite theme park feed and feed off of American and global nostalgia? Yeah, and actually, listeners, when this episode drops, I will be uh, three days away from my second Disney trip in as many years, so do with that <laughs> what you will. Uh, but one of the things about Disney World, I mean, and, and this is why I resisted going to Disney World for so many years, and my wife doesn't listen to the show, so I can narrate this with uh, impunity, uh, <laughs> is that, I mean, her appeal that we should, you know, drop the shekels and go to Disney World was always rooted in this notion that, you know, if we don't, the kids won't have that memory. And, you know, by, because I am cursed with, you know, historical perspective, I said, you know, most of the uh, human species has managed to go on without that memory, Mary. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, I mean, you know, it, it is one of those things where I don't know when they started moving this way in their marketing, but as I remember back as early as my own childhood, advertisements for Walt Disney World, because I lived 
uh, east of the Mississippi. That's usually the ads that I saw were almost always rooted in, you know, uh, do things that you and your family will remember together forever. Um, and so, I mean, it, it, it's one of those things where, uh, you know, since most advertisement is rooted in anxiety rather than desire, uh, the anxiety that a Disney advertisement would invoke is the anxiety that your children will be incapable of nostalgia if you don't take them soon enough. Uh, so it's so the I, anxiety of lack of influence. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, basically. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, now within the parks, I mean, it's interesting too, because, uh, you know, I mean, I, I joked while I was there that Walt Disney world was a monument to an ego. Uh, but I mean, at every turn, Walt Disney world is invoking its own history. Uh, mm-hmm. so it, it's one of those things that, uh as a park, you know, it, it might be the most self-aware amusement park that I've ever been to. Uh, and again, I mean, it's playing into that sense that, you know, now you have this memory of Walt Disney World in 2013, which is when I was there last, uh, so that when people go there in 30 years from now, you'll be able to say, well, it's not like Disney World when I was there. Let me tell you how the real Disney World was. Right. And, so, and they will, too. I mean, that's a, oh, that's yeah, a big they, issue. Oh, Oh, dear heavens, do they ever. Yeah. I mean, you know, if, if you mention that, you know, you're thinking of traveling there, you're in for a 20 minute story minimum. So, my, Michael, you are our Disney scholar. So, I mean, what what would you add to that account? It is a park um, literally founded on nostalgia. So if you think about when you when you come into the when you come into the Magic Kingdom and we'll stick there for now. When you come mm-hmm. into the Magic Kingdom, you enter this um, Main Street USA, right? Which is, which is a silly name. Yeah, but it is modeled on Walt Disney's memories of his boyhood in Marceline, Missouri. Mm-hmm. Uh, I suspect uh, turn of the century Marceline did not look like Main Street USA. <laughs> I suspect, though, that as uh, let's see, so in, in 1955 Disneyland was built. The one in the Main Street in Disney World is based off the one in. But I, I'm sure that 1955 year old, uh, 1955 year old, uh, 1955 Walt Disney, looking back at his boyhood, that 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 Main Street feels like it felt and that that's what it's supposed to that's what it's supposed to evoke so when when you come into that park or at least ideally what you're supposed to be doing is entering his nostalgia which to some extent you share either as your own memory or as cultural nostalgia or as as you were just mentioning you you now share it on, on this like fourth or fifth level of remove whereby you're nostalgic mm-hmm. for the way that used to be uh, you, last year there was a big deal because the Main Street Bakery stopped being run by Disney World and started being run by Starbucks. And people were very upset about this. And mm-hmm. they talked about it in terms of like corporatization. But you guys, Main Street Bakery <laughs> was already run by a corporation. That's but, phenomenal. But, but th- that, that is the way, that is the way, the, the kind of complicated function of nostalgia in that park. Now, the rest of the lands aren't directly nostalgic in the sense that they're not immediate individual cultural memories instead they're they're what you guys have have dubbed uh, cultural nostalgia and what i'm still waiting for that greek word for mm-hmm. um you, you have this idealized wild west you have this idealized uh early america you have you have uh, fantasy land which is the, the world of the movies and in that in that sense it is kind of a individual nostalgia because you're 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 mm-hmm. entering into these cartoons you liked when you were a child 
And, and then you have Tomorrowland, which is not about the future, but which is about the past vision of the future. So it's a nostalgia mm -hmm. about the time we're supposed to be living in now, but aren't what the TV tropes call zero rust. <laughs> and the, the yeah. other parks are, are, are this way too. And I would, I would point to, um, what do they call it? They, I always think of it as MGM studios, but it's, they call it Disney Hollywood studios. Now it mm -hmm. is set up to look like the Hollywood of the 1920s. Um, right. Which is, it's a, it's a very fun park to go to for that reason. But uh, I'm sure it wasn't actually like that. I'm sure it's a, it's, it's the kind of cultural gauze that's been, wrapped around that era right and then also the most dangerous moment at hollywood studios is when the gates first open and you get the running of the jedi which is to say every parent in their 30s and 40s trying to get their kids in there to be in the jedi show and yes i did get my son in last year and i do plan on getting both my kids in this year and if i have to run people over i just might that 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 commercial where the adult does that bothers me because you're not allowed. Adults don't do the Jedi Training Academy. It's only no, for they children. do not. That that yep. commercial has given false hope to many sad adults. Right, but what you do see <laughs> is, like I said, I mean, I, it, it's reminiscent of nothing more than the uh, wildebeest stampede scene from Lion King. If someone should happen to lose business or lose uh, balance. They will be trampled by middle-aged parents. You are not supposed to run because they had some tramplings. But anyway, so <laughs> so it, it's it's a lot, a lot of things you're not supposed to do, farmer. <laughs> Nostalgia is dangerous, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is dangerous. I mean, think about how much money you drop on a trip to this to have your have your nostalgia gland stroked. Mm -hmm. you, you know, and and so they, they've really made a business model off it. And, and even someone as hard-hearted as Nathan Gilmore can't help but get sucked into it from time to time. <laughs> Am I wrong? Oh, you're not wrong. You're not wrong. I did enjoy the Jedi show. <laughs> you, I'm sure you wished it had existed when you were your son's age. <laughs> yeah. And that 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 uh, that's that's a really great statement there. The the nostalgia for the things that would have been awesome if they had existed when we were that age. All oh, I had sure, was a sure. viewfinder for crying out loud. Well, I mean, look at the Avengers movies, dear heavens. I mean, yes. If those aren't playing to forty year olds who read comic books in nineteen eighty seven, I don't know what is. <laughs> <laughs> but if I mean, if you really if you really want to experience the kind of cultural nostalgia we're talking about, what you should do is go hang out in one of the Disney hotels for a day. And, and and look at how meticulously themed these places are to look like places your grandparents went on vacation. Victoria and I went to a bar at the uh, the Boardwalk Hotel, and it was I mean they played 1940s radio shows, and and it was decorated mm -hmm. it was decorated like an Atlantic beach resort. I've never even been to New England. I still felt something. <laughs> I, and, and so uh, I, I'm not sure they're not evil. In fact, I'm relatively sure they are evil. But man, they're good at what they do. <laughs> Without a doubt. <laughs> well, nostalgia has been in the blogosphere the last few months in the form of critiques or celebrations of so-called 90s nostalgia. Grubs, I am not on uh. Facebook anymore. But if the blogs are to be believed, your feed has been lighting up with gifts of the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air and clickbaity infotainment listicles about the Spice Girls. Uh, is, that, is that true? Are you an anomaly? And I feel you, vaguely dirty hearing you say listicles, listicles. by the way. <laughs> and e even if you are an anomaly, what does millennial nostalgia for the Clinton era tell us about our students? And about me, because I am also a millennial, as I always enjoy pointing out. <laughs> um, I, I am 
an anomaly, um, mainly because uh, apparently I've made all the right friends, and so the yes, the the Fresh Prince and the Spice Girls, um, I, I have a remarkably free uh, Facebook feed from from those. Um, there are other things I wish I could get free from. I'm looking at you, essential oils. But <laughs> you know. I was just complaining about that last night. Yeah. Anywho's. I am nostalgic yeah, well, for the whatever time you in do, which I didn't know what that was. Yeah, don't say snake oil around the essential oils people, by the way. It's it's surprising they would even use the word oil. It lends itself so <laughs> readily. Yeah, but uh, just uh, just take my advice. Don't say that. It doesn't turn out well. But are those essential oils gluten-free, and will they work on my paleo diet? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, sorry, Grubs. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's not on my Facebook feed, but I have a theory about this. Um, and I've had a theory about it since... I started college and I was watching um, the, well, I, I, I was getting towards the end of my college days and I started noticing that all of the high school students that I knew, um, kids in youth group, were having 80s night at mm -hmm. church, right? Um, and then I was like, that's really, really interesting because I remembered in youth group having 70s night. Hmm. And then, bing, I, I, I found the solution, which you guys can debate whether or not this actually is the solution. But uh, my, my theory was that we learn what is cool when you're a teenager on the basis of the pictures in our parents' high school yearbook. I don't know. I, I'm not sure I've ever seen my parents' high school yearbook. Mm -hmm. And if I had, I know what people wore in uh, in in 1970 when my parents graduated from high school. And uh, I am not sure I would have thought it was cool then, now, or ever. Well, I remember thinking, um, I remember thinking in high school when 70s nostalgia kind of kicked in. Um, amongst high schoolers my age, and the young ladies started wearing their hair very long and very straight, right? Mm -hmm. I remember thinking at that time how much I liked that look because it reminded me of the pretty girls in my parents' senior high school yearbook. Well, you know, in the early 90s... I remember, I remember thinking that thought. In in the early '90s, there was a like a rash of movies about growing up in the '60s. Mm -hmm. um, there was, and, and and like stuff from the '60s suddenly became cool again. Mm -hmm. And so it's like the 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 boomer nostalgia. And if there's a more nostalgic generation than the baby boomers, I, I would love to hear about it. Maybe, <laughs> maybe the millennials. Maybe we're worse. But um, the, you, you have boomer nostalgia creating trends in the next generation. And the generation mm. after that, I suppose, because, mm. yeah, so that that you may have something here, Grubs. Uh, yeah, that, I mean, that that was that was my theory was that that, you know, maybe not everybody looks at their parents high school yearbook. Apparently you did not. But but the, the for whatever reason that uh, that I think loops back around again in some way, um, that was that was the only way I could make sense of the nostalgia that my own students felt for the nineties is that their parents have high school yearbooks from like 1990. <laughs> so 
Are their parents that young? Um, I guess un- they would be. Our, our yeah, students are born well, in like from, 1996. From, yeah, late late 80s and uh, late 80s and early 90s. Yeah, I mean, I yeah, someone with whom I graduated high school in the same year uh, is a grandmother now, so it is possible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which, by the way, trips me out whenever she posts on Facebook about her grandkid. I, I bet it does. Yeah. <laughs> but like, oh, to be fair, you did graduate high school in 1958. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I asked for that one. I... <laughs> So, but uh, other than that, um, there is a um, a way in which the the imagination of childhood was um, was changed. Um, well, in, in in the eighties, which we experienced um, the the serial commercials and the you know the the franchise tie-ins between movies and action figures and all the rest of it. We kind of grew up with that, but something happened in the late eighties and the early nineties for which, you know, high schoolers and early and, you know, college freshmen now can be nostalgic about, which is the invention of video game Mm -hmm. and the degree to which their world um, and their experience of entertainment growing up was shaped by something that, that emerged then um, as well as cable, as well as you know those, those other those other kinds of things that are that were huge in their growing up experience, surfaced in that in that time. So, you know, I, I, I guess it's I guess it's kind of like you know people remembering. Well, I remember back when I used to go to the theater on Saturday and watch a serial, and it'd be Buck Rogers or whatever. Mm-hmm. All right, you know, so the golden age of video games and of home video games, anyway, and the golden age of, you know, cable, children's channels and so forth. Um, I guess that would be the late eighties and the early nineties. So, yeah, I guess that would be the time to be. Lo- that's the time you got to focus on if you're going to be nostalgic about a childhood that's shaped by those things. Anything to add to that, Nathan? Uh, I mean, really, the only thing I would add is that, you know, the the preponderance recently of remakes is giving mm-hmm. nostalgia its own particular character. So, I mean, mm-hmm. uh, and I mean, I, I, can't, I can't stand in moral superiority to this because I have not seen the G.I. Joe movies with Dwayne Johnson and I've not seen the Transformer movies uh, with uh, the live action Transformy robots but on the other <laughs> hand I, I, on, on the other hand I did watch every episode of the new Battlestar Galactica so yeah. I mean it, it's one of those things that uh, you know it, it, it's a strange culture because so many of the significant blockbuster pop culture artifacts of our moment are rehashed and remade 70s and 80s artifacts. Mm-hmm. Right, and I have no interest in them. I I, I loved the G.I. Joe TV show when I was a boy, but mm-hmm. I never, I, I've had no desire to see the movies because m- maybe that's the more nostalgic impulse because I figured they would not, they would not live up to my very pleasant memories of getting up at 5.30 in the morning to watch G.I. Joe. 
to watch mm-hmm. a whole lot of people mm-hmm. shoot colored lasers at each other and yet no one dies. Hey, <laughs> hey, but you know, you learned a moral lesson at the end. Exactly. That's right. Because knowing is half the battle. It is. It is half the battle. <laughs> well, nostalgia is a word that tends to be used pejoratively, but I, I think it must have some valid uses. Uh, why are we so nostalgic, Nathan, and what role does nostalgia play in the formation of our identities? Yeah, th- this was the hardest question in the set for me because my I, I am, once again, the opposite of Michael Farmer. I, I scarcely have a nostalgic bone in my body. Uh, you know, I... And and honestly, part of it was probably that, you know, I was the kid who didn't really grow into myself till I was 30. So I really <laughs> don't look back fondly on childhood and and God help me, not middle school or high school. Um, so it's one of those things where, you know, I, I, I try to think, OK, how could it have a positive effect? Because in my own experience, it just doesn't. And this is the best I could come up with when I was prepping is that nostalgia brings us back to sites in our lives, those, those loci that, you know, David was referring to earlier, uh, that could be associated with if we're reflective about them. And if we take care with them, they could lead us towards gratitude towards those who we would be otherwise inclined to dismiss. Mm -hmm. Uh, so this is one of those things that, you know, uh, I guess I would encourage those who are more nostalgic than me, which is to say most people, you know, when you get nostalgic for the 80s, remember those people who were important to you in the 80s who at the time you thought were just a major drag. You know, when you get nostalgic for the 90s, oh, millennials, you know, I mean, again, think back to those family members and teachers and, you know, people who at the time you were so ready to get away from and realized that they were making you who you are. Uh yeah. So, I mean, I guess that's that's about the best use I can come up with. Uh, Michael, if you had something else in mind, please tell me what it was. I, I did. I, I would suggest that because nostalgia arises uh, out of despair on some level, mm-hmm. uh, nostalgia arises from the feeling that things were not things are not as good as they once were, and and I am not the person I once was. Nostalgia mm-hmm. can allow us to connect the dots between who we were and who we would want to be because it's really, you know, it's wish fulfillment, it's imagination as much as it's memory and, and who we are now. And, and so I, I would say for a lot of people, although clearly not everybody, nostalgia mm-hmm. is a necessary component of identity formation, um, although it's still dangerous, right, because you can, you can, you can become Don Quixote. You can, you can live in a fantasy world. And instead of instead of using these this soft sadness to to construct yourself in a meaningful way, you can just kind of mope. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, there's a a bit in "Surprised by Joy" that well, it's actually what "Surprised by Joy" is about. Um, Lewis's somewhat selective uh, spiritual biography autobiography, um, in which he talks about as a child, um, receiving as a gift, a miniature garden. No, it was not him. It was his brother, I think. Anyway, a mini, a a miniature garden. And he remembers as a child looking at this miniature garden and feeling this delight at, at how beautiful it is. It, um, and, 
that later on um, he recognized that uh, well it, actually I'm short circuiting it um, so this this first kind of moment of this experience of of beauty that that Lewis remembers he keeps trying to get back to that and so when he reads a book that makes him feel like that again that becomes his favorite book and he reads it and rereads it um a piece of music a piece of art whatever seems to generate that feeling he comes back to it but what he discovers is that the more he goes back to that site of nostalgia so to speak the site of that of that soft sad joy um the soft sad joy was not in that site and if he if he just keeps listening to the piece of music or keeps reading the story, he doesn't keep having the feeling. Um, and so what that leads to in Surprise by Joy is the idea that what he was actually feeling was a kind of homesickness or a kind of nostalgia for an experience that he had not yet had or a place he had not yet been. And then he transposes that, you know, into... Uh, a theological dimension and says that 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 joy was um, essentially in an edenic longing sort of at the beginning of human history but also a uh, a kind of heavenly longing longing at the end so that um yeah he 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 says that essentially the thing that energized his nostalgia was ultimately um what should have been a a uh, a spiritually focused desire. All right, listeners. So we were right in the middle of the show there. And all of a sudden Michael Farmer's microphone died on us. Uh, we don't know what happened. So I'm going to go ahead and take us out here because I've got to go teach here in a few minutes. Uh, next week's show, I'm going to be at the helm and the subject matter of conversation is going to be Emmanuel Kant's essay. What is enlightenment? Uh, that'll be, one datum that will be important to you. The other datum that you should be aware of is that Papa Grubbs won't be with us. He'll be tending to a brand new baby at home. So we wish you the best on that, David. Danny Anderson, uh, who some of you remember from about a year ago, he subbed in for a spell, will be coming back on to finish out this semester with us. So we're looking forward to that. In the meantime, listeners, you can find us on ChristianHumanist.org. You can email us at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook, on iTunes. You can find us all over the place. Please tell your friends about us. Remember that this is this show is a part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our intern is Zach Schmidt. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. And this is Nathan Gilmore, a frazzled Nathan Gilmore, in behalf of David Grubbs and the strangely silent Michael Farmer saying, Let your sins be strong, let your faith be stronger. So the sad-